0: Welcome to the iLead Podcast. My name is Albert Quinn, and on this show, we'll talk about the essential process of leadership development and its human impact on the engineering community. What's leadership, you may ask? At iLead, we believe that it's the skills and mindsets that foster self-awareness, self-efficacy, empathy, teamwork, and the ability to navigate organizations and systems in society that help engineers lead change to build a better world. Starting a business can teach you a lot about your own leadership. It can push you to clarify your values, set more tangible goals, confront failure, and learn to work together with a diversity of people. Running a business is also hard. It's laden with ambiguity and iteration and requires a lot of resilience. So what happens when you're building a business and you find out you have brain cancer? On today's episode, Milan Mikovic. Troost Eileeds Assistant Director for the Community of Practice on Engineering Leadership speaks with Laura Burgett, a U of T Engineering alumna, Chem 1T6 or 1T5 plus 1, and co-founder of Three Ships Beauty, an all-natural, affordable, cruelty-free skincare brand where she's responsible for product innovation, operations, production, and finances. We'll hear about how Laura's lessons as an engineering student and her reflections on personal values set her up for a path of entrepreneurship, and how running a business with a serious medical diagnosis can make you better appreciate a life with no regrets. Let's have a listen.
1: Welcome, everyone. Today, we're speaking with Laura Burgett. Laura is the co-founder of Three Ships Beauty, a natural skincare brand, which she founded in 2017 after becoming frustrated with options for natural and affordable skincare products. Laura is also a chemical engineering graduate from the University of Toronto and was recently named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list for retail and e-commerce. Welcome, Laura, and thank you for joining us on the podcast.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, great. Um, Well, starting out engineering student, ending up in skincare, what happened in between there? What does that journey actually look
3: like?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, It's surprising to me how many um, engineers actually go into entrepreneurship. So I'm definitely not alone in this journey. Uh, I've always been very entrepreneurial. So I remember even back in high school, I would be thinking of different business ideas. Even in elementary school, I'd be making like, you know, earrings by hand and then selling (laughs) them on the playgrounds market, uh, school grounds to my friends, uh, parents. So it's definitely been a core part of who I am ever since I can remember. During university at U of T, I started to delve more into entrepreneurship. So I was one of the managers at the U of T engineering bookstore. So that was Mm -hmm. the first, I guess, business that I had run. It was me and one other manager. We were responsible for all the day-to-day operations, the hiring and training of staff, all the ordering, um, all aspects of the business. So it was a really, really fun experience for me. Gave me a chance to trial out entrepreneurship without having to make a big commitment financially or time-wise into starting something from scratch. Mm -hmm. And it was just a one-year term. So it was, again, a great trial run, had a ton of fun running that. Um, The summer after that, so somewhere in between my second and third year of school as well, I ran a college pro franchise. So that's an exterior house painting business had a crew of eight working under me did $120,000 in sales that summer, um, which covered the cost of my tuition and all my living expenses for the next year, which was amazing. So love that experience as well. And was thoroughly bit by the entrepreneurial bug after that <laughs> point and had in my mind that I was going to start a business after I graduated. It was just a matter of, um, you know, what that business was going to be. And I learned two really important lessons from that experience with College Pro. The first was that I hated painting. I never wanted to run a painting <laughs> business again. It was just so messy, um, so much handholding for each one of the clients. I didn't like being in a service-based business. It takes a lot of work to Mm -hmm. have just a revolving door of customers coming and going. Um, I wanted a product that I could create and then ship out several times. So after you create it, it's kind of, you just keep the wheel going. Mm -hmm. That was one thing that I learned is I wanted to start a product-based business. The second thing that I learned is I did not like being a solo founder. It was extremely lonely um, very demoralizing at times because even though friends and family and significant others can support you, they don't actually know fully what you're going through because they're not living and breathing it every single day. Right. I also knew that I have weaknesses, of course, as a person. I'm very introverted. I don't tend to love going to like networking events, which is ironic because I come across as very extroverted. But yeah. I actually really tired when I'm around new people all the time. And I didn't like social media, which obviously is a huge marketing channel, probably the biggest marketing channel for brands now is yeah. social media. And I just had no interest in it. So I was like, okay, I, I know that I want to find a co-founder to help balance out these weaknesses of mine, to fill in the gaps for skills that I don't currently have. And also just to have fun with, like, it's just yeah. more fun to build something as a team I've always found than building it solo. So in my final year of school, I took the intro to entrepreneurship course with Professor Parity. So I did that for both semesters and started writing down in a note on my phone of these different business ideas. And at that same time, I started just as a consumer to get really fascinated by natural beauty and skincare. Um, I was hooked on it as a consumer. I loved how effective it could be, but then also how clean the ingredient standards were. Um, So I was just making my own at-home remedies and was struggling to find something on market that was as clean and natural as what I wanted it to be, but also Mm -hmm. worked. And didn't cost me a fortune. Any of the brands that I found that were up to the standards that I wanted as a consumer were like, you know, $100 for a cream, $400 for a routine. And I just couldn't justify spending that much money when I was a student. Yeah. Um, so, actually, within six months of me graduating, I had started the business initially under a different name and just as a side hustle. So, I took $2,000, 1500 of which was a grad present from my grandparents wow. um, that they have given me. And that's what I used to start the business and grow things from there.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. And I want to come back to kind of the the scrappy beginnings, I guess, in a moment, but there's something that stood out in in you sharing those kinds of steps of your journey in school. And it was the, there there was kind of a real sense of self-awareness, I suppose. Like you knew what your strengths were. You knew maybe where you didn't want to invest your energy. And you had a sense that one way or another, this was a path that you were going to make an effort to pursue. And I'm curious, how did you go about kind of cultivating that that understanding of yourself and what, what it was that you wanted to get out of um, your career or, or your entrepreneurship journey?
2: So this answer is going to sound a bit morbid, um, <laughs> okay. but for me, it's all about minimizing regret. So I mm. watched this really impactful com- uh, commencement speech by Steve Jobs that he gave to the graduating class of Stanford back in the early 2000s. Um, I would recommend that everyone go and listen to it. It's really incredible. And mm-hmm. in that speech, he talks about how death is the great equalizer, as well as the great greatest motivator in his life. Mm. And from listening to other business like gurus and um, just like overall value experts um, online, a lot of them spoke about studies that show that a lot of people on their deathbeds will have all these regrets of, oh, I regret not doing this, or I regret not saying this to this person, or I regret working so much, not doing this aspect of my career. And I just knew that I didn't want to have those regrets. And that if I hadn't started a business, I always would have come back to that as being a regret for me. So that's really where I think a lot of this self awareness came from was just like, if I find out that I'm dying in a week, which again, sounds very morbid, yeah. um, what do I want my life or my legacy or my experience to look like that will make sure that I don't regret any of the decisions that I made? So that's still one of my top guiding principles in life and is a large part of the reason why I started to take the leap and I think have such a self-aware um, state. And maybe it's also always been a bit of a part of me to be really self-aware. I tend to be very self-critical as well, which I think mm-hmm. is typical of a lot of um you know, people that are entrepreneurs or like to take risks, they tend to be really hard on themselves too.
3: Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It seems like there's that, that has become an element of of your leadership and how you're approaching new opportunities. And maybe that, that willingness to take risk is an element of it, of it as well. And, and coming back to the kind of scrappy beginnings, so to speak, and starting with $2,000, working a full-time job, starting this on the side. Yeah. At what point do you look at what you've kind of created in your in your living room and say, this is, this is it for me. I think this could be it for other people. Like, how do you make that leap to this is what I'm going to invest my time into. This is what I'm going to hustle and try to put out there and, and do something with.
2: That's a good question. I think it really comes down to just taking one step after the other. So uh, like you mentioned, started the business, which is $2,000. I met my co-founder Connie through a mutual friend who I'd known from U of T engineering. He also was a student there, went to middle school with her introduced us originally just for me to do some market research with her. And then Mm -hmm. it really obvious that she was my perfect co-founder match. And so we literally got started on the business the day after launched three months after that. So I think it comes down to not getting too bogged down in the weeds. We didn't focus on making the business perfect before we launched. We allowed the market to guide those decisions. And over time, we started to pick up traction. We'd go to local craft fairs and like, farmers markets essentially around Toronto and sell our products on the weekends outside of our nine to fives. And over time, people started to hear about us and start to come back. They start to learn more about what we were doing and we started to build up more of a following. And then the real driver for us going full-time was one, making sure that we had the financial resources to know that we didn't need to pay ourselves anything from the business for the first mm-hmm. six months of going full-time. I think that's really important. A lot of founders go uh, like kind of cold turkey in a sense that they have this idea and they're like, all right, I'm going to do it before they have any proven right. market traction before they know that they have product market fit. That's really risky. I've seen a number of other founders who have done that after we've launched and they rarely last longer than a year, which sounds terrible. But in that initial startup stage, I, I'm a huge proponent for running outside of your nine to five. That's mm-hmm. why I've seen many, many success stories come from within this space. But once we did have that product market fit, we had customers that were coming back and knew us, especially locally within Toronto, Connie and I uh, had built up our own personal savings. So we knew that we didn't need to pay ourselves for at least six months from the business, which yeah. was an important element for us. And then the final bit was that we actually got into an accelerator that coincided exactly mm-hmm. with when we were planning to go full time. So all those things combined, we're like, okay, this is the moment we have something real here. We've gotten into an accelerator Um, So we have free office space. All these resources are available to us now. We have an initial customer base that's proven out that we have product market fit. And we know that we have the financial resources that we need to not be worried about paying our bills after going full-time with the business. And those three things combined were the driver to tell us, okay, we have something here that is worthwhile for us to take the leap on.
1: Yeah. And it it seems like that's, that's actually really good advice for people who might be listening and maybe are working full time and thinking about something that they're passionate about and, and starting it off the, the side of their desk, so to speak, that they don't need to kind of approach a cold turkey, that there are cases out there of people who have actually kind of managed both for at least a little bit of time and then then taken this kind of gradual leap, I suppose, into, into entrepreneurship.
2: Yeah, it's very common, especially within any sort of consumer or product-based business that tends to be very much the path that I see because people started these businesses because they're really passionate about something or they're just really curious about a problem, which I think is very much the way to approach it. Um, And I'm a huge proponent for not jumping in with both feet from day Mm -hmm. one and said, take a more cautious path because your initial product is rarely ever the one that actually gets you to success. Like Mm -hmm. our initial set of products, we don't even sell anymore because they couldn't scale. We couldn't find someone to manufacture them when we outgrew being able to hand make it. So, um, you know, if it weren't for us going through that process of the first two years, bootstrapping things and side hustling outside of our nine to fives, and then launching other products in that process, if we had just gone full time from day one, it wouldn't have lasted for longer than six months, the company. Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: And how much of that kind of cautious approach and iterative approach stems from engineering and from kind of a, a background in?
2: In I think chemical a large, engineering. Yeah. Large part of it. Yeah. I think as engineers, we're definitely taught to be problem solvers. Um, you know, pretty much any of the courses that we take, it's okay, what are your knowns? What are your unknowns? And what are some right. of the variables that you can plug in that you need to solve for in your formula? Right. And that's the process of engineering principles and critical thinking. And I think being able to break down really complex problems, which business and life is one big complex problem, <laughs> and both smaller parts. Sure. And really think critically, okay, what do I have control over versus what are my unknowns that I don't know what the outcomes are going to be and how can yeah. I focus on the things that I can control and the inputs and variables into that, that I can move as these levers in order to get the outcomes for the outputs that I want. Um, and definitely in chemical engineering, that's all that it is. Like you yeah. have something that goes in, something happens and then another thing comes out and that's very much how business works as well.
1: Is there an example of how that came up in, in developing one of your products?
2: Uh, it's a lot of trial and error, I would say. Okay. So like one example of limitations and designing around limitations is when we first started, since we are hand-making everything in Connie's condo kitchen, we were really limited in the types of products we could even produce. Right. So there's this one ingredient supplier that I got in touch with in Toronto that had really low minimum order quantities. Like as long as you ordered a hundred bucks worth of raw materials from them, they were fine. And I could just drive over and pick it up from their warehouse. Mm-hmm. So we weren't having to order like huge vats of like raw materials. Right. And so basically what I did is I looked at, okay, what are my knowns? What's the catalog of ingredients I've access to? And what types of products can I develop with just those ingredients? Because I don't want to have to reach out to some of these bigger commercial suppliers. We're not big enough to even create accounts with them at this point. Um, So that was one of the major limitations that we started out with.
1: Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, And I like one of the the pieces that you mentioned around Kind of variables. Uh, often we think about we think about people as inputs into the process and yet in, in kind of a leadership sense, um, that doesn't always map on so neatly, right? Like there are different kinds of relationships that you need to cultivate or build. and even just starting with like uh, a co-founder who's coming mm-hmm. in from a very different kind of uh, background, maybe a background where you don't share the same vocabulary or, or mindset around processes and things like that, I'm curious what was it like to, to go ahead and meet this person? your co-founder Connie, and a day later decide to uh, get things going and just jump into it and partner into this kind of incredible business that you have now. What was the leadership involved in that?
2: Yeah. At the time it was just really exciting. I think looking back, it was kind of crazy that I literally (laughs) one and three hours later offered her half of the business. But I think that a lot of entrepreneurship and therefore also leadership is sometimes just going with your gut and like asking the critical questions so for example one of the things that I really cared about and kind of I mean our first meeting in some ways was kind of like me interviewing her and also Mm -hmm. her interviewing me and really getting a sense of each other and one of the things that we chatted about which I remember doing in our leadership classes at um at U of T was we talked about our Myers-Briggs types and we're Mm -hmm. huge fans of Myers-Briggs and through that process we learned that we're actually polar opposite Myers-Briggs personalities so I'm an INTP she's an ESFJ Um, so this was actually something that I was like, okay, this is like a good sign. I want someone who balances me out and is a completely different person than who I am. But we also learned about our value sets. So we were raised in very similar types of households, Mm -hmm. identical values towards like money and responsibility and work. Both of our dads were entrepreneurs as well. So we were used to seeing what that took and what it entailed. We had very similar visions of what we wanted our lives to look like similar visions of what we would see, like success being like an entrepreneurship. Some people want to do the Tim Ferriss way and have a four hour work week, which is not what we were all about. We're like, let's <laughs> work hard in our twenties so that we can be rewarded in our thirties. Both right. of us have always known that we wanted to eventually have the business get acquired. So I think having alignment on those things, on the values and looking at values and then looking at skill set and, and thinking, okay, how can I divide the responsibilities in the business Between the two of us and then putting trust in her. Once that division is done and I give her that trust, like actually handing that over. And I think all of those qualities of leadership of, okay, looking, okay, are we value aligned? What are the skills that this person's really good at? And how can I give them tasks that align with their skills and interests Mm -hmm. are really important fundamental leadership abilities that you have to be enabled to, to action on, especially as a leader when you're hiring people. And the same thought process has applied as we've hired and added more people to the team. We we now have nine full-time employees as well as three interns currently. Um, so the team has definitely grown over the last uh, several years. Um, but that's really how I would think about things now. And it worked out really well for us. Um, there were obviously challenging times where we had to have hard conversations. Yeah. Um, I always think back to APS 111 and, it's like the forming, norming, storming, performing um, type of model. Right. And we right. sure followed that. Like we formed and everything was like great. You have your rose colored glasses. You just see the best of each other. You're, you know, focused on all the little details of the business. And it's just, there's so much excitement around the launch. And then once you launch, you start to establish some of these like normal like expectations and then you run into some stages where we were butting heads ran into some communication issues that we had to work through Mm -hmm. and now that we've gotten past those we're really in our performance stage as a team Um, so I see a lot of parallels and overlap there
1: that's great and and for listeners who are tuning in maybe outside the University of Toronto APS 111 is engineering strategies and practices and is an introductory level uh, course at the University of Toronto And uh, I love that you brought up values. I think that's something that we obviously talk about a lot at ILEAD in the context of leadership and team formation as well, values kind of being a critical way of understanding yourself, understanding the people you're working with and finding that common ground and and ways to uh, work together that are productive. And and that kind of allocation of of tasks to to strengths also harkens back to that that self-awareness that we talked about earlier and like really being confident about what your strengths are but also being willing to say, actually, here's an area where I'm not
3: good. Not at, and yeah, and I'm
1: for, for better or for worse, I'm, I'm just not strong there. Maybe I'm not interested in being strong there, but I don't have to be everything for everybody. I yeah. have people. I have a team. I can kind of um, build that or we can build that in, in your context, which leads me to the question around um, trust. And another term that we use often is kind of psychological safety, kind of the mm-hmm. the opportunity to make mistakes and know that they won't be held against you. And I'm curious, how do you go about building trust in your team, which has grown so quickly in the last few years and, uh, again, has people from all kinds of different backgrounds?
2: Yeah, I think it really comes down to having clearly defined responsibilities. So between Connie and I, we have a very clear division of responsibilities. I handle the back end of the business. She handles the front end. Mm -hmm. And when I brought her on, a lot of people were like, well, Laura, this is your idea. You shouldn't give up control. Like, That was a question I got from everybody. And nobody (laughs) agreed with how I did it that I gave her 50% of the business. Like I wanted a 50, 50 partner. I had no interest in maintaining control of the company at that point, because I wanted a true partner and co-founder. You know, my title is not founder and hers being co-founder. We're both co-founders,
3: both
2: co-CEOs. And that's a distinction. Um, I think otherwise if I had done 60, 40 or 51, 49 for me to her, Mm -hmm. it it would have changed things because by instilling the structure, it, makes it really obvious they don't have full trust in them and they don't have full buy-in either. So I think that that's one thing is that you need to make sure that your fundamentals are set to show true partnership if that's what you're actually looking for. Mm -hmm. Have a clear division of responsibilities. Same with as the team grows, we have a very clear breakdown of what each one of their roles are, the KPIs and milestones of their growth and of their role and what it will take to get them to that next level. So then they know what's expected of them. That's a really important element of trust. And then once you have established what they're responsible for handing over the reins and accepting, okay, not everything's going to go perfect. They're going to make some decisions that I may not agree with. Right. The decisions are actually better than what I would have done. I don't know. It's their part of the business. I'm not really going to get too involved and <laughs> just giving them the space to be able to make their own decisions, but definitely being more of a servant leader to be there in the event they do need you, or they do need to run something by you. So now Connie and I have this process where, Um, and the whole team has actually adapted adopted this as well where we use the same nomenclature with each other so uh for example if we want to send someone something just as uh just letting you know about this like the decisions made but i want to keep you informed Mm -hmm. we'll always put fyi ahead of that message so Mm -hmm. it's just more of like an acknowledgement but it's not that we're asking for anything um connie and i if we need input from the other person we'll be like hey can I just run this by you? Can I get your like founder thoughts on this? Like right. I'm torn about this decision Right. and having the trust to come to each other when it is a harder decision and involve that person, but still knowing that ultimately whatever I put as input is not Bible like or gospel. It's, right. it's just my opinion and everyone can have their own, own say and own leadership over things. And then also, of course, like we mentioned, value based hiring, I think, is really important. So we have four key values on the team, and those values we hire and fire by. So if someone's starting to stray from those values, it's really easy for us to say, hey, look, like you're not aligned with the team right now. What's going on? Um, mm-hmm. Why aren't you mm-hmm. exhibiting these values of integrity or of hustle of curiosity that are so important to three ships?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's kind of the metric or the qualitative element of, of making sure that people, uh, have direction, know where they're going, know what they're going to be evaluated on, all those kinds of pieces. But then you're also getting into these kind of human to human level interactions and expectations. And, and how, do you, how do you navigate some of the, um, the emotions or the feelings or the things that might come up when, when somebody runs into a challenge? Like I, I, there's this interesting values-based piece, obviously that you mentioned that you hire and fire by, but in terms of, of building that trust, on a regular basis, what are some of the practices that, that you have in place and maybe even might recommend to folks who are listening in and not necessarily entrepreneurs, but running teams and engineering companies or students who are running a design team, for example?
2: I'd say, again, other than the things I've already mentioned of having like clear expectations and clear responsibilities and aligning those responsibilities with what their core strengths are. I think that those are fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Um, Beyond that, uh, also transparency. So we're very open with the team about the business and how Mm -hmm. we're thinking about things. Like, for example, right now, they know that we're fundraising. They know how the fundraising is going. We update them every single week with progress and how things are shaping up and how things are looking we involve them in the interview process. So if we're hiring someone that they'll be having to directly work with, oftentimes we'll have the team meet that person during the interview process. Now, it doesn't mean that like, if they don't like a candidate, but they're still our top candidate that we won't hire them just because one person doesn't like them or didn't get a good impression from that one interview. But it's just another way to show, okay, we care about you. We want you to be involved in the process and we want your opinion to matter. Um, So I think that's a huge part of it. Um, other than just giving people autonomy and the space to make their own decisions and their own yeah. failures. Like we never get upset at people when mistakes are made, unless it was something that was truly an oversight or something that they promised that they would do and didn't get done, didn't get done, didn't get done. And then it's a conversation.
1: Yeah. And that sounds really empowering at the same time. It sounds like, yeah, yeah. yeah there's room for people to go ahead and, and innovate on a team like Definitely. that as well. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. yeah we're a very flat organization. Like we only, right. I mean, we're only nine people too. So that kind of lends itself to being very flat as well. But I don't really believe in having lots of hierarchy within teams. I'd rather people just kind of lead on their own. Maybe we'll have like three levels max within the company as we grow. Um, and that's how things will end up being over time. Um, even when we hire interns, we give them a lot of responsibility. We do have some intern openings that are coming in, coming up for the summer, actually, that we're going to be hiring four interns, I believe, maybe five. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have a huge impact on the business. And we want them to actually work on projects that actually see the light of day and not just busy work (laughs) that's behind the scenes, which I think is also typically the case for a lot of internships from my experience when I was doing internships as well. And so I think that even seeing how we treat interns also gives a lot of confidence for the full-time team to see like, you know, everyone here is treated fairly everyone here is treated as a valuable team member and they really do want to go above and beyond because of that.
1: yeah that's great. Um, I want to come back to uh, one thing you mentioned which was uh, the kind of transparency that you you try to instill and obviously you mentioned there have been all kinds of challenges over the uh, the life cycle of the um, of the organization I guess but also there have been some personal, Challenges that you've navigated, um, and I'm wondering if you're if you're willing to speak to some of how you how you navigated those difficult moments and, and kept the team going and kept yourself going.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's been a roller coaster over the last couple of years. Yeah. So I'm 28 now. Two years ago, at the age of 27, or sorry, 26, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Yeah. Um, which just came as a huge shock to me, my family, Connie, and at the time when I was diagnosed. It was still only her and I that were working on the business. We had been mm-hmm. full-time with the company for a year at that point. And it was just really disorienting and just a huge shock to the system. I think I, at first I took you know five days off to really just kind of wallow in my feelings and just be sad and yeah. give what was me. And then once that five days was up, I was like, okay, now what am I going to do about this? Like I'm, <sighs> I need to keep moving forward. I'm not going to let this determine who I am or define me as a person. I think that maintaining your dreams and ambitions throughout illness, even if it's something like brain cancer, is really important because it gives you the sense of hope or something to, to strive towards.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, but I'm not going to lie. It's been really challenging in many ways to have a brain tumor when you're also trying to grow a, a, a startup and you're so young. It's just been really disorienting in many ways. So mm-hmm. uh, just under two years ago, so actually a week before COVID lockdowns took into effect in Toronto where I live, um, I went in for brain surgery. So it was a 10 hour long operation. Yeah. The surgeon was able to remove 70% of the tumor, which came back as a grade two astrocytoma when they run the genetic test, ran the genetic testing. So it's in between like a really malignant, um, aggressive brain cancer and benign. It's kind of like this weird in between where it has yeah. the genetics of a malignant tumor, but it's just kind of like not quickly replicating. Um, but we have to keep an eye on it. So I go in for MRIs now every three months go into the hospital every 28 days for, um, blood work and like BCGs and all these different tests, all these different tests. Um, I'm currently on a immunotherapy clinical trial as well, which is really exciting. Yeah. I feel very lucky that this clinical trial opened up at just the perfect time for me. And that I haven't had to have any chemo or radiation, but I mean, it's definitely been really hard. It has pushed my resiliency to the max.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's it's hard enough being a a young person and a startup founder, and let alone to to navigate all of this and and have a team of people who are looking up to you and relying on you. And and where do you turn to to find that that resilience? What well, what are what are your supports?
2: Um, I mean, first and foremost, I turn inward. I think that you have to be your own biggest support mm. system in many ways, and just telling myself, like, it's all part of the story. This is just another chapter in my story, seeing the good things that come from a cancer diagnosis in terms of, like, the context context it gives me for life and gratitude for every day. I'm honestly grateful for that aspect of things because Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have the same perspective towards life if I hadn't had these experiences and hadn't been diagnosed um, with the brain tumor. Um, So definitely inward first. My family, I'm extremely close to, especially my mom is someone that I really turn to for support within um, my cancer diagnosis as well. She's a family doctor, which is really fortunate and unfortunate. She tends to blame herself for Mm. what happened and the fact that I didn't get diagnosed sooner, um, even though it's no one's fault, really. And, but she's been incredibly supportive. So has my dad and my two sisters and um, also my boyfriend, Chris, I turned to everyone in my life in terms of relationships, family, friends as well. They've been instrumental in keeping my hopes up yeah. um, after my surgery. And this is pretty common within young cancer patients in particular. I started to blame myself for what happened. Of being like, did I do something that caused right. Me to develop brain cancer. Like, did I not drink enough water? Did I eat too much from like plastic containers? Did I not exercise enough or eat enough spinach? And the truth of it is that like, none of those things actually cause this. We don't really know what causes it. It's just bad luck is what it comes down to. Just one little cell that mutated and then started replicating is is what it is. And so to get past those feelings of guilt and self-blame, I've turned to therapy, which has been extremely helpful. So I have a therapist I meet with And she's a service that's provided by princess Margaret, which is the cancer hospital that I go to. So she works only with young adults that have various types of cancers. Um, So she's been incredibly important to my like holistic well-being and resiliency.
1: Yeah. Wow. And I mean, it, it strikes me that when, when there's something like that in your life that you're navigating, there is no, there is no work life balance in the sense of you compartmentalize this piece and, and it, Goes away for a little bit, and you do it. You're you're doing active, ongoing inner and personal work all the time, like every day, right?
2: All the every day, yeah. all the time. And there isn't a single day that goes by that I don't think about the brain tumor and how it's just yeah. still chilling in there
3: for the balance. <laughs> chilling, itself.
2: yeah. It's like it's yeah. yeah, yeah. So I hope that it keeps chilling for many more decades to come. I believe that yeah. that's what's going to happen. I believe in the power of visualization and like positive thought as well. But I mean, you're right. Some days it's really easy to compartmentalize. Other days, it's really hard, especially when, you know, the business is growing and you're running into growing pains or supply chain problems or personnel issues or fundraising or your cash flow isn't where you want to be. There's so many problems that you'll run into that sometimes it just feels like this is another layer that's getting added on. But I Mm -hmm. truly do believe in the power of seeing the bright side of something, even if it's something as devastating as brain cancer. That there's yeah. always a positive thing that can come out of something.
1: Yeah, that's that's such an incredible mindset to to try to look for the the benefit of it and and to allow for kind of some of those those negative elements, I guess, to exist and to address them and and not just stuff them away. But it also really strengthens strengthens. Sorry, the earlier quote you made around um, <laughs> the morbidity, I suppose, around Steve Jobs' commencement address, but but the optimization it's of large. regrets hits that yeah. much harder with, with that knowledge, I guess. Yeah,
2: Or in some ways I find it so much easier because like Mm -hmm. the main difference that I perceive is I'm like, you know, any one of us could die any day. We don't Mm -hmm. know what's coming down the road. I just maybe have a better sense of what's going to kill me is ultimately Mm -hmm. what it is. And again, that sounds really morbid and like weirdly optimistic or weirdly calm, but that's just the approach that I've taken to things that I find really helpful um, to just be like, you know, I'm not really that different from the rest of everyone else. I think humans, we have this automatic condition that we like to believe that we're in control and we know what's gonna happen.
1: The main that character. Kind of a
2: safety coping mechanism. But the reality is that we're not in control. We don't know what's gonna happen. And I think mm-hmm. that the, um, having the business because there's so much that's outside of your control that happens and you just have to deal with and roll with the punches. I think that that experience of having that under my belt before actually starting the, or getting diagnosed actually it served me really well. And those two skills have played off of each other in incredible ways. And I'm just very grateful for being able to be a founder and an entrepreneur while going through this because of the insight that it gives me into resiliency and grit. And then also the flexibility mm-hmm. that it gives me with my treatments that I'm able, you know, tomorrow I have to go to the hospital and I'm able to take the morning off without needing yeah. approval from somebody. And, um, It's also given a renewed sense of purpose behind what we do. Obviously natural skincare um, is something that's even more near and dear to my heart now with everything that I've experienced. Um, And it also gives our team a sense of purpose as well. So now we donate a portion of all of our sales to Make-A-Wish. Uh, and we also run multiple fundraising events for them throughout the year. So that's wow. been a really rewarding way to be able to give back as well um, since our funds go directly to children and young adults that have brain tumors and brain cancers, which are actually the leading cause of cancer related deaths within young adults or brain cancers. Wow. and we still know nothing about them.
3: Yeah,
1: that's incredible. Just need to let that sit there. i I don't I don't feel a need to.
2: I know it's heavy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's the reality. And to see how you found that, um, like you say, that resilience and grit, and, and it has changed you in some ways for the better, I suppose. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's really an incredible story.
2: Thanks, Milan. Yeah. It's been definitely a journey still yeah. evolving, but I truly do see this chapter within my story. It's not the defining moment. Um, I'm extremely lucky that my surgery went well. There's a, a strong chance that I was going to be paralyzed after the operation, which was just like, they obviously run through, run you through all of the risks and they're like, okay, yeah, there's a 3% chance you have a major brain bleed and you, or 2% chance you have a stroke. And then you wake up and you're nonverbal, like things like that. And you just have to kind of accept those risks. Again, I'm lucky that the clinical trial is working. I'm lucky that it opened up at the hospital that's literally within like a 25 minute drive of my house. Yeah. Um, like just so many things that I don't take for granted, because if I had been diagnosed with this, like even a decade ago, none of this technology would have been available. Um, right. So timing is so much to do with things. And again, that's something that I don't have control over. I just got fortunate. So I try yeah. to see the lucky aspects within this unlucky diagnosis. It's like, yeah, I have brain cancer and that sucks. But at least I'm next to like Canada's top cancer hospital. And they just opened up this clinical trial that's in its third stage. And um, I'm in exactly the sweet spot for what they're accepting. I That's super lucky. Um, um, just so many things that I'm just grateful for.
1: Yeah. Wow. I'm curious for maybe for folks who are listening and, and you know, on the theme of optimizing for no regrets for people who are thinking about taking that risk or taking that first step in general towards something that they, they know they will regret if they don't do it, what do you have to say? What kind of suggestions or advice might you offer?
2: Sounds overly really simplistic and Nike's copyrighted this, but just do it, <laughs> honestly, just get started. Don't focus on having it be perfect from day one. Mm-hmm. Your first idea is probably not going to be the one that's going to get you to where you wanna go. Mm-hmm. Have a really clear sense of what you want your life to look like be really honest with yourself of who do you want to be in that life in the future? Where do you want to live? What work do you want to be doing? Do you want to have kids? Do you want to have new pets? What would you want your day to look like? What do you want your ideal weekend to look like? Get really well-defined about those key aspects and make sure that all the decisions that you make are with that North star guiding in mind and really aggressively go after that goal, but be patient in knowing that's going to take you a long time to get there. Like mm-hmm. from everything that I've seen, it usually takes Anyone that's starting something, whether they're a musician, they're an artist, or they're an entrepreneur, it takes them five years to even start to become that, quote unquote, overnight success. It, right. doesn't exist. it takes five years. So the sooner that you can start, the better off that you will be in the long term. And I'm a huge advocate for people starting things when they're in their, in their teens and 20s. Life is just a lot simpler when you're younger. You mm-hmm. don't have most, I mean, it's not that you don't have a lot of people don't have mortgages. A lot of people don't have children. A lot of people don't have the number of responsibilities that just pile on the older that you get, you have more responsibilities and it becomes scarier and scarier to start something. It's better if you know that you want to go down that path, start it sooner than later, because there's always going to be a reason in the future why it's now is not a good time. Because there's honestly, there's never a perfect time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of reflection, I guess, that goes into that understanding of what it is that you want to do, what kind of life you want to live and lead. And there's kind of introspection leading to authenticity in there. And, and to push this to a level deeper, maybe for the, for folks who are listening, who might be in circumstances that are a little bit more underprivileged, or maybe don't kind of have that, um, that financial backing or navigating other challenges in, in their lives, um, how might they go about just doing it?
2: I mean, when it comes to financial backing, that definitely is a thing that people run into, even us starting the business with, Kanye and I each put in $2,000, so four grand's, A lot of people may not have access to even that amount of money, Um, but everyone has the ability to save that amount of money. Even if it takes you two years, like put aside a hundred bucks a month Mm. um, into like this side little jar That after two years, you'll have $2,500 and you can start actually building a business with that. There's been people that have built businesses like, um, I believe it's called Winky Lux. She started her business with 500 bucks and now it's a hundred million dollars in revenue. And another thing is make sure that you have a good credit score. You should be checking your credit score. It will impact you as you start a business and you're looking to go to banks or get credit cards or whatever. It's an important thing to pay attention to. So if you're thinking about starting a business and you're running as a side hustle right now, while you still have your full-time job, use that time to pay off your debts, use that time to get up to date on your credit card payments, get Mm -hmm. your credit limit or your credit limit increased on credit cards ideally because it's a lot easier to increase them when you have an income versus if you try to go to them after you've already quit your job they're not going to give you anything because you don't have any money coming in. So mm-hmm. do that. And also get your credit score to minimum 750 points mm-hmm. would be my okay. recommendation from like a financial side of things. Those are very super tangible, very tangible. Yeah. Targets to hit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, as we kind of come to the, the end of our conversation today, I mean, we've, we've talked about how, how your leadership has evolved. We've talked about the importance of values We talked about resilience and grit, especially in the face of some really difficult personal experiences that maybe not everybody listening will necessarily um, resonate with directly, but certainly will resonate with in some way. One question to leave you and, and the listeners off with, in this whirlwind of the last four years, and especially of the last two years that you've navigated, what is the one highlight that kind of summarizes your entrepreneurial
2: journey? Oh, man, for me, it would probably be seeing our products on shelf at Indigo. So when Connie and I first started the business, literally, I think it was the weekend after we had met, we went to the Eaton Center in Toronto and walked around all the different stores here. So we went to Nordstrom, we went to the Bay, we went to Indigo, always like we went to Sephora, And Indigo was one of the stores that were like, man, how cool would it be to see our products on these shelves one day? We're going to make it happen. Like I remember the products, I think I still have the photo that I took of what the shelf assortment looked like at that time on my phone back in 2017. And we launched with Indigo around 10 months ago, initially on .ca only because they're like, oh, we need to test out, see if you're actually going to sell. Crushed it. And then they brought us on in-store in six months. So now we're in half of their stores across Canada. Wow. And so going in and seeing our product in Indigo is just such a cool moment because it's literally a full circle, like something that I always wanted to have happen. I don't know yeah. that I ever in that moment when I went into that store in 2017 with Connie, I'm not sure that we actually believed that we would be able to make it happen, but mm-hmm. we believed that we would be able to put in the work to give ourselves a chance to make it happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that was definitely a really cool moment. And then Dragon's Den was another thing that was the same sort pinch <laughs> right. of pinched me right uh, We were on Dragon's Den uh, a little over a year ago. So season 15, episode two, if you're interested in, in watching it. Um, I've been watching that show since I was in high school and used to procrastinate my studying and engineering by watching Dragon's Den episodes. So I've been I've watched so many pitches on these sorts of shows and mm-hmm. to be able to be on there, get three offers from four dragons and walk away with the deal um, was just super, super exciting to us. Um, and it, it just felt like a completely surreal moment.
1: That's awesome. Those are incredible highlights really. Yeah. Full circle on, on both of those anecdotes, I guess, Full circle
2: on both of those things, which I think is also, it gives you a warm feeling because you're like, okay, this is something that I never thought that I'd be able to accomplish. And look, here I am. Like, it's just, it's crazy.
1: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Laura. I think there's a lot to take away from from this conversation, both on a personal leadership level and a team leadership level, and also just the the realities of navigating some of the, the challenges that come up in life.
2: Yeah, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for the conversation.
0: The ILEAD podcast is produced by the Troost Institute for Leadership Education in Engineering, also known as ILEAD at the University of Toronto. ILEAD's mission is to inspire all engineering students to identify their capacity as leaders with the ability to influence positive change wherever they are. We offer academic courses, co-curricular programs, industry training, conferences, conduct world-renowned research, and act as a hub for engineering leadership education in Canada and beyond. To find out more about iLead and our vision of engineers leading change to build a better world, please visit iLead.engineering.utoronto.ca. That is I-L-E-A-D.engineering.utoronto.ca. Or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at iLeadUofT. Thank you so much for listening.